Welcome to our new and improved live stream, this time with sound. Uh, fantastic. Live streams with sound. I hear uh, some people do report that live streams with sound are better than live streams without sound. This time I'll, I'll make sure to share system audio. Uh, that might work. And so we'll do that. So uh, the purpose of this podcast today is to talk about re rhetoric, rhetoric how people use words and language to convince people of truths of matters, uh, how, to, how, to, how to tug at people's heartstrings and rather than talking facts and, and figures, instead uh, sway someone through emotional devices. And as an example, we got this video by James White, James White versus Bob Annert debate. And there was a nice lady in the God is Open website who pulled this up and she said, I've never heard anyone say this before that that the cross is is contingent, that the, the cross prophecy can fail, and she points this out. But I thought this is a great example of how individuals like James White, they're debaters. They don't care about facts. They don't care about evidence. They don't care even about the topic at hand. The topic at hand is, is the future settled or open? So we'll listen to his line of questioning, his line of reasoning, and we'll see if that aligns to the topic of the debate. Is that even about the debate, or is he looking for a gotcha? He's looking for a W, a win, to bring back to his home team. And so we'll listen to James White and see what he has. Well, maybe we'll listen to James White. We'll hit play and see if the audio goes. I don't know. Um, Unnecessary and, at some level. Okay. And when you have verse 19, when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 43.10, applies it to himself. Yes. If Judas had not done what Jesus said, then how would the disciples know that Jesus was the I am? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how he's, this is not an argument. James White's not making an argument. He's not making a point that's to the topic of the debate. So if I told my kids, clean your room or else I'll spank you and you'll know that I'm your dad and I have power over you. Me spanking him or not, my or my children, me spanking my children or not doesn't mean that I'm their dad or not. It, it's just evidence towards a proposition. And it, it's not about, it's, it's not like if someone else spanked my kids that that person would be their dad, or if my kids subverted the spanking, maybe maybe they they talk to me and, and reason with me and subvert the spanking that I'm not their dad anymore. James White doesn't have an argument. It, it's a rhetorical device. It's to, he's trying to say you're denying God is who He is. It's 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 not an actual it's not an actual point. Even even if everything was granted that he's saying, it's the verse doesn't support what he's trying to prove with this verse. But let's listen to what Bob Enyard does with this. Same way that those who love the Lord in Jonah's day knew, because when prophecies of warning fail, God rejoices. Is this a prophecy of warning, sir? Yeah, it is. Where? Judas, you're, it's going to be worse for you. Uh, the provisionist perspective writes, spanking is illegal in New Zealand unless it's the fascist government spanking the unvaxxed. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. A government just does whatever they want. Concentration camps, I think, I hear is the new thing down in, down under. That's what they like to do. For you than if you had never been born. Uh, I think what he says is what you are going to do, yes. do quickly. I don't yes. see a warning in there. Well, there prophecies, and James, you should realize this, prophecies repeatedly go unfulfilled, and God says that they go unfulfilled, and he's proud about it because I, it shows his mercy and love. I, I don't. Uh, this this reminds me of uh, something that just happened the other day. I was tagged in this post, and they're like, "Open theist, can you deal with this prophet or the, how prophecy goes unfulfilled?" I'm like, 
what th this is a category that you accept in Jonah it says 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. It's, it's just it's just a flat out statement. And then it doesn't happen. And ex post facto, you look back and you say, oh, that's conditional. And so if this prophecy here that James White, this is what he's putting all his weight on his evidence. If that didn't come true, uh, then he would say, oh, that was conditional. It's only after the fact when he looks back on it and he sees the fulfillment that then he claims it's unconditional. There's no standards. There's no standards in this view. But uh, let's hear Bob Adair. I believe any such thing, but be that as it may. So well, Jesus, gives, Jesus gives a specific statement. Yeah. And he identifies the individual and he bases his self-revelation of his own deity yeah. on these words that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And the only answer you have to that is that, well, it's like Jonah. God identified men by name and said they would serve him forever. Aaron's four sons. And then two of them he killed and sent them to hell because of how wicked they were. And we still know that God is God, even though what he said, naming them by name. And so uh, Raddy, or Roddy, uh, he points out, he says, I find these hypotheticals nonsense uh, to be pointless because what if Judas didn't betray Jesus? It, it happened. It's ridiculous to question it. And so these what ifs are emotional arguments. Well, what if this happened? Then what? Ha. Huh. It's like, okay, it's then what? This is, you're, you're getting into a conjecture. You're getting into hypotheticals. It's not about the text. It's, it's not about the truth of the subject matter. Is the future settled or open? What it is, it's the moralistic fallacy. If you give an answer that I don't like, then we, we boo at you. We hiss at you. Uh, there's a meme that the provisionist perspective reviewed where they just try to laugh you out of the room. That's their goal here. Their goal is not to argue facts and evidence and go over the biblical texts and figure out what the biblical text supports and what models are consistent or not. It, it's a rhetorical device. They want to uh, attack you, your character. They want to attack you and ridicule your beliefs. And so they're looking for, Matt Slick does this and he, he admits to it that he's looking for these little gotchas that he could pull a little quote out. Open theists say God makes mistakes. So he'll go, he'll try really hard to get like an open theist to say that. And then he'll publish it around and say, see, open theist said God makes mistakes. Isn't that terrible? Doesn't that make you sad? Aren't open theists just the worst people because they said this thing that we don't like? It makes us feel sad inside. It, it's rhetoric, rhetoric. It's rhetoric. It's, it's not an actual argument. He's not arguing. arguing. This is not a debate. It's a rhetorical exercise for James White to go back to his audience and say, ha, I got to win. I got to win. That they would serve me as priest forever, and it didn't happen, because if you know God, you're on the okay. same page. You know why he changed so, his mind. So in Acts 1.16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. <laughs> Adam writes, uh, yeah, Jimmy's flabbergasted by the comparison to Jonah. As I said to Calvinist friend yesterday, incredulity is not an argument. Uh, James White does this. In, well, I, it might even be this debate. It might have been uh, his last debate, something like that, where it's like, oh, Mormons always bring up Jonah. Well, okay, Mormons, if, if someone we don't like, like let's pretend we don't like Mormons, if some someone we don't like makes the argument we don't like, then it's a bad argument, and no one could ever make that argument. Uh, thank you, James White. Uh, such such intellect, such brilliant. Um, thank you. The concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
So is it your understanding based upon your understanding of Pleirothe and Dai uh, that what this is actually saying is that this didn't have anything to do with Judas, it was just illustrative, and this happens to give us an illustration? Yes, when David wrote that, it was about his son betraying him, and that was not a prophecy, but it was fitting. That's why Jesus took one who would betray him, who hated God. He chose him anyway so that this parallel would play out, and those of us who love him would realize that Jesus really knew what he was doing. So Bob Enyart here, what he's trying to do is he's trying to reframe the debate. Uh, James White, he has an advantage in that his audience grew up in a Western culture. They see prophecy as a crystal ball that you look into and see all, all these little details. And uh, Bob Enyart is answering this question expertly to try to point out that in the Semitic world, they were looking for parallelism more than they were detail fulfillment. Most of this prophecy that's fulfilled, prophecy with quotes, uh, that Matthew talks about being fulfilled, they're just parallel texts. It's if, if Judas never existed, you're not going to be able to go back to an Old Testament text and say, hey, look at this failed prophecy right here. If Jesus wasn't killed on a tree and is killed by beheading, uh, you're not going to turn back to Psalms 22 and say, this prophecy is completely debunked. Uh, the Bible is false. You're just not going to find that because they typically didn't think in that fashion in which prophecy is a crystal ball. Uh, the, the, these fulfillments are cyclical events. They're, they're events that that cycle in history and give patterns. The patterns give the truth to the to what what you're describing. That's why Paul's able to play very fast and loose with the text of the Bible. Uh, he repurposes texts that are about Jews and makes makes it about Gentiles, uh, about singular individuals, and makes them about nations and vice versa. This this is just how they thought and how they treated the Bible. So categorically, categorically, our, our frame of reference needs to shift when we're talking about the Bible. But James White wants to say, if this prophecy doesn't come true, then God's a failure. Well, throughout the Bible, God says things like 40 days in Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Didn't happen. God says in Jeremiah 18, I won't do what I said I was going to do. I won't do what I thought I was going to do. So God God fully acknowledges he can make very definitive statements. Uh, Eli, your sons will go before me forever and then reverse it based on unfolding circumstances. The conditional doesn't have to be explicitly stated. God's not a slave to his word that he's just forced to do things no matter what happens. That, that's not who God is. That's not his character. That's not, that's not even a good dad. If I promise to bring my kids to McDonald's and then they misbehave, I, uh, uh, I don't have to follow through on that promise of bringing them to McDonald's, even though I didn't have it in mind when I made the promise that I was going to reverse it. I didn't have to say, oh, if you're naughty, then I'll revoke this. It's There's a change of circumstance. And so I'm not I'm not held to my word anymore because the conditions changed. This is, this is just normally how people function. But the Bible has to be uh, mechanistic in the Calvinist mind. It has to be, there has to be formulas there has to be metaphysics. Statements have to be metaphysical. And so if there's a statement that says uh, God never lies, that means to them that there's a metaphysical rule in the ether that says if uh, if God says in 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown and then he really means it, then Nineveh really actually has to be overthrown or else apparently he violates this uh, rule and now he's a liar. But the but the rule takes precedence over God. It, it's, it's, a, it's a weird... Uh, we'll, we'll go through an example of this with this very topic, with the crucifixion. Uh, I got a very good example of someone 
using metaphysics to override the text. Uh, God is a slave to the metaphysics. Uh, God is not uh, fulfilling principles. His, his character is not pushing towards fulfilling general principles, but those principles control what God can do in Calvinism. God's not a person. Doing this was well thought out. Mr. Enyart, how would any... Yeah, Drew says, we talked about this in our meme review. Salvation is not mechanistic. Yes, salvation is a relationship. It's not like God... This is why the Calvinists say, oh, um, you guys value free will. Your free will could save you because they view it as like an on and off switch that we're throwing the switch rather than it being a relationship. Yeah, I want to be friends with everyone who wants to be friends with me. That's it's it's not like someone could be force me to be their friend though, you know? It's 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 not like I'm I'm stuck into any relationship based on factors that other people control. I get to decide these things, but I don't do it willy-nilly. I don't do it capriciously, and uh, I do have some leeway in what I, what I accept. And so in the Calvinist mindset, metaphysics rules God. Everything's formulas, everything's in the ether, everything's set. God is not a person. God does not have decisions, and so we could force God. In, a, in the Calvinist mindset, if Arminianism is true, we could force God to save us in their mindset. And then they project this mindset onto others. Of the Jews, of Jesus's day, have known that he was the Messiah, given that your entire exegetical stance is now that any Old Testament citation that must be fulfilled is actually just an illustration that may or may not be fitting. How could the early church? It happens over and over. I called my son out of Egypt. Yeah, so again, it's another appeal to incredulity. It's like, you're saying this thing that I really don't like? And then Bob Edwards like, yeah, that, that is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I, 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 it's terrible, I know. Egypt, there is no prophecy that says that God the Father would call his son out of Egypt. They take non-prophecies, historical events that are not prophetic in any way, and we draw a New Testament parallel because when God had that recorded, the Lord knew that this would this would represent events. And so this is just not open theists making this up. Uh, you have people like Bart Ehrman, who's not a Christian. Uh, you have people like, uh, God didn't say that, Joel Hoffman, who, who points this out. You have people, people like Michael Heiser, who points out that this is a real category of prophecy, this par parallelism, rather than crystal ball fulfillment. And so this is not like an unknown scholarly concept. People know this. And if you read the Bible and you're honest with the Bible and you turn to Psalms 22, uh, you, you say, hey, there's no prophecy here. It's not, it's not what us Westerners think as a prophecy. And so when it doesn't come true to the detail, also that's something we need to get out of our mind. It's not a failure of prophecy. Prophecy is about a general thrust of a prophecy, not about details. And so when details fail, that's, that's irrelevant to the overall prophecy. It's in the life of Jesus because God is an active player. Okay. He's not a passive participant. All right. So in light of this, please explain Jesus' words in Luke 24. Then he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You sure. just told us there's nothing written about him, didn't you? No, the entire Old Testament is about the Lord. Such as? And it must be such as that uh, he would be the seed of the woman. He'd be born in Bethlehem. His hands and his feet would be 
pierced. How could be God raised know, from the how dead. Could, how could God know these things? Because God is not incompetent and powerless. God so, had so a plan he, so he to could send violate, his son. Okay, so he could violate the wills of No, men. not at all. So, so no king could ever choose to destroy Bethlehem. God could have stopped them. So you are a neo-Molinist then? That's ridiculous, James. Well, isn't Molinism where God micromanages things to accomplish his purpose? God, God intervenes a thousand times in the Bible. You pretend okay. right. that if the future is not settled, God is impotent and foolish. No. He just has to watch. I'm, I'm not, I can't respond. I'm going to follow the rules here. Verse 46. <laughs> yeah, Bob Edier is 100% correct that they think God is incompetent. God either controls all things or is he, he's incompetent and can't do anything. That's why you get those really weird memes like uh, Drew McLeod reviewed on the provisionist perspective where like a free will is like a superpower that like overrides God and God is like impotent in, in face of someone's free will. And if God does anything, then he's somehow violating their free will. These are nonsense categories. No one outside of Calvinism accepts these categories of thinking. It's not natural to us because it's it's not like throwing a criminal in jail violates their free will. People don't think like that. The, the criminal still has free will. He could decide to do things. He's just coercively limited in his options by someone who's who's controlling him. It's not maybe like a lobotomy. People might say, oh, your, your free will is getting uh, overridden, something like that, but not like throwing someone in jail. That's not how people think. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to the, all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Where was that written? Uh, I don't recall. I'm getting older. It's in the Old Testament. So that, that's another thing you'll see by people who are driven by rhetoric. They'll, they'll try to ask for specific references or specific details. So if I, I remember when I was a kid and I was in college, and I was visiting a friend's friend in Galveston, and we're talking about the failed prophecy of Tyre. And he's like, "We're we're talking. To, I'm talking about how how the details of the prophecy didn't come true." He's like, "Oh, what king was that?" He's looking for like little gotchas, like like if I didn't know the king's name that was involved in that prophecy, then apparently I don't know what I'm talking about, and my points are moot, right? Um. That's what James White's doing here. Can you just give me the reference? Because I know the reference. And I'm going to try to demonstrate here my superior knowledge of the Bible than you when you can't come up with a, the exact reference for my talking point. Huh. Could it have been invalidated because Jesus chose not to go to the cross? Uh, Jesus went to the cross willingly. He Could submitted, Jesus have not gone to the cross? Yes. He submitted his, he said, Father, not my will. Okay, remember, the debate is about, is the future settled or open? And uh, James White's trying to say, hey, uh, can Jesus not, did, did Jesus have to go to the cross? This is not a point about the Bible. It's not like something about whether the Bible is true or false. This is a, a gotcha. If you say no, that uh, the cross was contingent, um, then we could shout it to the roof and we could use it as, as something to proclaim to all our followers. Look at this bad belief that these open theists hold. And so Bob Enyart does answer skillfully um, without directly giving him a talking point. But thine be Could done. Could Jesus have hated the Father? Jesus. So uh, what Bob Enyart also does, which I advise to everyone, is because you're in a debate about rhetoric rather than facts, he points it to the Bible. He says, yeah, Jesus said, 
not my will, but yours be done. And this is after the, Jesus says this in the Bible. He says, with you, all things are possible, God. Um, please let this cup pass from me. So you, you would think that Jesus going to the cross is within the category that Jesus thinks that God could do all things. God could stop this cup from coming to Jesus. God could stop the crucifixion. And God would if Jesus asks. And that's why he follows it up with, he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Because he, Jesus, willed not to go to the cross. And he knew that God responds to prayer. And it's a very real possibility that God would subvert the cross based on the petitions of Jesus. Jesus did not think the cross was necessary. And so Bob Anyart, he could have tried to debate the merits of the thing. Like, yeah, so the future is open, but um, yeah, it, it is determined in some sense, in the sense that God has plans, that he's going to make those plans come true. But you're debating with someone who's entirely disingenuous. It's, it's not going to be a good argument against someone who wants to portray you in a negative light. They're not in, in er, interacting in an intellectually honest way. And so the best thing to do in these situations is pit them against the Bible, for example, like James or not, like Bob Anyard does to James White, where he says, it's not me who believes it. It's, I, it's You're not arguing against me. You're arguing against Jesus. This is Jesus's beliefs. Because then now, now you're not bogged down with with like nuance and trying to explain uh, the the various details of of how you see how things play out and the necessity of events versus events that have that are definitively planned and executed by God through God's capabilities. You're not do, dealing with that anymore. Instead, you're contrasting that individual with the Bible. There was a debate I had with a Molnist and it was on a Discord server. So I don't have the recording that I know of, but uh, one really interesting part of it was when he's trying to argue his metaphysics. I said, okay, that's all, all well and great, but no one in the Bible believed this stuff. And so let's talk about uh, the evidence in the Bible about what they believed. And then he automatically considered that as me conceding that his his Molinism was intellectually consistent, which is not the case at all. I could argue Molinism all day, but you're arguing with someone who doesn't want to understand your points. They're not going to listen to your points. They think that they're intellectually superior to you. So it's like, what are you accomplishing? It's it's better to grab out something that would cause a massive cognitive stress, something like, okay, ah, it's not me that believes the cross is contingent. It's actually Jesus. And now they're not arguing against you. They're arguing against Jesus. <laughs> Nuance is often treachery, David writes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, F F Fisher needs to do an episode on how to debate and win against bad faith actors. I think I did uh, a, a talk or podcast talking about some of Scott Adam Adams' uh, ideas for turning tables on types of arguments like that. But I, I got a cough, so I'm going to hit play, and I'm going to hit mute, and then I'm going to go. Go cough. Loves the Father willingly. Could Jesus have hated the Father? If Jesus turned against the Father, the Godhead would come undone. Is that a possibility? Jesus is committed to righteousness. He's is committed that a to possibility, sin. sir? Y yes, Jesus is Thank committed you. to righteousness. Yes. But is that. Yeah, so uh, right here, James White's looking for the gotcha. And so that's shocked a lot of people in the audience. And I've seen several times on, on Facebook people bringing up this part of the debate, uh, this part of the discussion. Uh, Bob Enyart could have and probably would have been better to point out, yeah, it's not me that believes this. This is literally, literally Jesus that believes this. 
And so let's go pull that up. Uh, we're looking at Matthew 26. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, okay, this is this is the it, not my will, but yours. And this is one of them. But let's look at the parallel as well, because the harmony text actually gives us a few details that the Matthew reference doesn't. I think it's the Mark reference that uh, we're just pulling this up real quick. I gotta find my I I had it pulled up. It just disappeared for me. But typically, since I don't know verse references very well, I just uh, Google keywords and then I could get the verse reference. Okay, here it is. Matthew 26, uh, 53. So he's in the garden. And Jesus says to him, uh, he says, put back your sword into its place, for all who take the sword shall perish by the sword. Interestingly enough, within the New Testament, there is another prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And it's uh, Jesus needs to be counted among uh, the thieves or counted among the unrighteous. And so he has his followers sell their cloaks and buy swords. And so we'll, right there, we get an instance of Jesus taking positive actions to ensure that prophecy checkboxes are checked off to meet prophecy fulfillment. So prophecy is not like a mechanistic thing where everything in the future is set. It's something that Jesus actively strove to fulfill. He's like, okay, here's one, and then we'll go take some positive actions. Uh, we check that mark off, and then we'll go try another one. So it's not like it's a fated event, but it can be fulfilled in multiple ways. And Jesus had to take positive, active steps to fulfill that prophecy. Prophecy does not work like the Western mindset thinks it does within the Bible. But here's what Jesus says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So let's look, look at the language that Jesus uses. He uses this very definitive word cannot and he uses it in a negative sense basically it's a rhetorical device saying you understand i can can call on my father to send 12 legions of angels and scripture would then be not fulfilled but because we want scripture to be fulfilled i'm not going to do that <laughs> that that's what he's saying uh so jesus thinks that the cross can be subverted and that's what he's probably referencing there in verse 54. But how then should scripture be fulfilled? That's probably a reference to the cross. Um, he's saying, if I do do this thing, then the prophecy is not going to be fulfilled. The, the, then the scripture is not going to be fulfilled if I do this thing. But he thinks he can do this, uh, that thing, but he has reasons not to do it. He thinks about that. And so I was dealing with an individual today who wanted to reverse this. Again, in the Calvinist mindset, everything's mechanistic. There, there are iron rules of metaphysics that exist in the ether that cannot be violated. And one of these things is that uh, prophecy is fixed and firm, and it takes precedence over everything. I was, I was dealing with another individual uh, who is a friend, and it was very frustrating because his claim was that if any prophecy didn't come true in detail, then if, if you claim that any prophecy didn't come true in all details, then you're denying biblical inerrancy. It, it, as, if, as if the case that we t treat the text seriously 
and believe whatever the text says, as if that doesn't take precedence. He's, he's got a rule that takes precedence over the actual text of the Bible. And so he has to reinterpret everything in the Bible such that all prophecy comes true in details, and then ex post facto, if it doesn't, you just claim it's conditional, and then claim anyone who claims otherwise is uh, denying biblical inerrancy. But but this is reversed in our the mind of the individual I was dealing with today, who, who's claiming that Jesus actually could not, could not uh, call on God to send 12 legions of angels, because then that would invalidate the scriptures that would subvert the scriptures and so what takes precedence and i think he actually used the word precedence is the fulfillment of the scripture over jesus's choice so it's it's not that that's the exact opposite of what the text reads you read the text and jesus says i can do this but i'm not because i'm taking active steps to ensure the prophecy is fulfilled he reverses it and says jesus is only kind of talking uh, semantically but he can't actually do that because the, the scripture needs to be fulfilled. So the scripture fulfillment takes precedence over Jesus's choice rather than how this is worded, where Jesus actively wants to have scripture fulfilled and so takes active steps to ensure that it is fulfilled. Again, it's metaphysics. People have in their mind that there's this huge metaphysical system that must come true. And so in, in that sense, Anytime the Bible says any little detail, uh, since the scripture always must come true, if the Bible has any little detail, that detail must have come true at some point in the future in all prophecies, unless, of course, it's uh, arbitrarily conditional. And that, that's how these things work. And so one good example is the prophecy against the city of Tyre. The prophecy says Tyre will never again be rebuilt. Now, personally, I don't think that... Any prophecy that says, oh, the Amalekites are going to be killed forever or something like that, or this city shall never be uh, rebuilt. Again, it, within the Bible, the thrust of prophecy is more important than the details of the prophecy. So if the th thrust of a prophecy is these people are just going to get wiped out and uh, no more, hyperbole can be used, and it's a legitimate form of speech, and it's a legitimate way of understanding a prophecy, and you can look at something and say, oh, yeah, that, that basically generally got fulfilled, so that's a fulfilled prophecy. But uh, this this other way of viewing prophecy doesn't allow that kind of general thrust to happen. The details must come true because the details are more important than the thrust. And so you'll, you'll find people uh, doing mental gymnastics to make sure that every single prophecy of the Bible came true in every single detail. And guess what? Language is flexible, so they're going to find a way. I was dealing with one of these individuals years ago, and he claimed the prophecy in about Nineveh, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that prophecy actually came true because it was a spiritual overthrow within 40 days. And so um, it, it's not a failed prophecy because the words must come true. But then you look at the details going on within Jonah and it says God did not do what he said he was going to do. Okay, so God said he's going to do something and doesn't do it. That's a reversal. It, it's a quote-unquote failed prophecy by the metrics of the people who want every detail to come true in every instance. Or, or if it doesn't, then they just call it conditional after the fact. But that's the thing. So Jesus takes active steps to make sure the scriptures are fulfilled. People want scriptures taking priority.
precedence? Do they care about what the text says? Uh, it doesn't feel to me like they believe in biblical inerrancy. If the text has infinite leeway to mean whatever it is that we want it to mean, as such that it can never be falsified under any circumstance. Oh, I was, I was dealing with one of these guys. I was dealing with uh, an, an individual who wanted all prophecy to come true. Oh, what, what was it about? First Samuel 2? What were we talking about? I asked him, what would God have to say? You know, remember the sons of Eli and the sons of Eli are wicked. And then God revokes his unilateral promise to them and then replaces it with a conditional promise telling us, letting us know that it wasn't conditional to start with. I said, okay, you want to claim that this particular verse was always conditional? What would this verse have to say to communicate to the audience? The, the author is trying to communicate to the audience that there is a unilateral promise that surely would come up to pass that God then revokes based on circumstances and then replaces with a conditional. I didn't get an answer on that. Uh, he didn't want to answer that because I think there's no better way to write what the verse actually says than what the verse actually states. I don't know which one it is. I usually have it highlighted in my, my online Bible. must be on my laptop. That's <laughs> so funny. Okay, that's another thing I actually want to talk about. Adam's like, Calvinists re about God repenting. We just need to start saying to them, who are you, a man, to tell God he can't change his mind? It, you could use the exact same words found in the Bible to describe your own beliefs, and they will object to things you say. You could say, yeah, God repents, and they'll, they'll go psychotic on you. Oh, that's so terrible. Like, literally, the Bible says that God repents. There, there, there's a lot of verses that have God repenting, and then it's incredibly awful when I say it. In the same way, Jesus uses the word that he can do stuff. Uh, he says, God can do everything. He uses the word can. He says, don't you know that I can pray to God to get this change? Can. But if you say that the prophecy can be subverted using the same can, uh, they'll, they'll claim that you're some sort of heretic, that you're some sort of uh, you're you're doing something bad or or evil. It's so terrible. They'll make excuses for for Jesus's use of the words. So uh, I'm jumping a little bit over the place here. <laughs> Relationality is the push, both when talking to Calvinists and atheists and New Agers. The goal isn't to get them to agree with me, but to get them to abandon factual mechanical assumptions and like yeah, it's often when you're dealing with individuals who are stuck in this mindset that mechanics trumps text, that that uh, things they have unfalsifiable positions. The Bible can't have an inaccurate detail in any prophecy. You can't interact with them about the details of a prophecy and say, hey, this prophecy didn't come true for this and this and this reason, because they'll, they'll look for any out. They'll look for like grammatical outs, like uh, the grammar uses this specific uh, phrase and, and it's conditional. And so the, the prophecy is always conditional, stuff like that. There's always going to be linguistical outs. And that's because language doesn't work with hard and fast rules. It actually works very loosely and generally. And so, yeah, language does allow that leeway to, to take any verse with a lot of flexibility to mean various things. And so you're not going to win on those points. All right, I'm trying to find that verse real quick. Uh, Lord, therefore, the Lord says, okay, here we go. 1 Samuel 
Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed. And so that that said indeed is a double use of the Greek said, not, not Greek, Hebrew said. So often when, when the, the Hebrew words double up, you know, dying you shall die within Genesis account. Uh, Genesis 3, he says, if you eat of this fruit, dying you shall die. It's a doubling up of the word. So it means surely you will die. And this is this is uh, doubling up the word said. I said, said. So I said, surely, that your house and your house of your father would walk before me forever. Uses the word forever. But now, so but now is a phrase that if you pull that up, a lot of times it's saying there's a new circumstance or or now I'm saying something. There, there's a specific instance that something new is coming about or a specific point of time is being referenced. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. And so what's far from God? It's his original promise that uh, Eli and his sons would walk before him forever. So he said that. Then at a new point of instance, it's now far from him, his his original promise. And so if his original promise was conditional, does that make too much sense that he says, I said, if you serve me, um, then I'll bless you. But now it's far from me. What? And maybe that is the case. Maybe he's revoking a conditional promise to an unconditional uh, blessing or unconditional curse. But it doesn't make sense to replace a conditional with another conditional. That's this exact same conditional. It says, but now the Lord says, far be it from me. My original promise is far from me. Those who I honor, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. He's saying, I'm going to just respond to people how they act towards me. I'm responsive. I'm changing this thing. And I'm giving you a new standard operating procedure that replaces it. Why? Because I figured out it wasn't, I, I can't stay true to this promise. Eli's sons are so wicked. They're, they're seducing ladies at the temple. The temple is this holy place and they're profaning it. I just can't stand by this anymore. So I'm replacing it and I'm just going to be true to the people who are true to me. That's what's happening here. The language can't be more clear, but individuals who need every prophecy, every statement of God to stay true no matter what need to do something with this to subvert what it's actually saying, to subvert the thrust of it. What's it communicating to its audience? What does each phrase mean? What does the, each phrase communicate to Eli, who he's talking to? Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Within the Bible, God says things that don't come about. And this should not be a surprise to anyone who knows the Bible and knows God's character. God says, yeah, if there's a nation who I pronounce against and then they repent and become good, I'm not going to do what I thought I was going to do. It's It doesn't make sense. I'm a God of justice. I'm not a God of process. I, there's not a metaphysical either that I'm forced to follow in order to make sure that the words come true in every detail. It's not a facet of the universe. So we're going to let him play out, uh, James White and Bob Inert play out a little bit more, and we'll turn back to that conditional. You, you said Jesus committed to righteousness. Well, you want is to... it possible for yeah. the Son, as a human being with free will, to have chosen to rebel against the Father? Yes or no? Yeah, the, the temptation of Jesus was real. It wasn't a ruse because he's a per person. He could be tempted. He's not a stone idol. He's not a so the Godhead yes. could have ceased to exist. Could have come undone. That it wouldn't was, have ceased to exist. That was uh-oh. 
I'm getting uh, some connection problems apparently from YouTube. But back to Matthew 26, uh, 53. Do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus thinks he can do this. What will be the consequences if he does do this? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled? The consequence of this thing that he could do is that scripture would not be fulfilled. Jesus thinks he can do things to make sure scripture is not fulfilled. Jesus thinks prophecy can not be fulfilled. It can not be fulfilled. That's Jesus's words, not mine. And so if you adopt Jesus's words, um, they're going to get very angry. But yes, Jesus thinks that the cross can be subverted. Can. That's not my words. It's Jesus's words. Jesus uses the word can. I'm using his language. It doesn't mean it's probable. It doesn't mean it's probable. All right. John Q. Public says a sovereign Calvinist God sometimes requires a blunt instrument with spikes. That's where I come in. Uh oh. <laughs> Mary subverted Jesus's time with the booze miracle. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's actually one of my favorite stories where Jesus gets an entire wedding party drunk and they're like, "This is the best alcohol that we have." Usually, usually they say this to Jesus. They're like, "Usually, um, people get their people drunk, all their wedding guests drunk before they bring out the best alcohol because then you can't taste it anymore." It's like people who drink alcohol. They might drink hard alcohol with a chaser at first, but the more drunk you get, the more you'll just do the straight alcohol because your taste buds are are dulled. And so that's why people at these parties would bring out the best wine first because that's when people could taste it. But once you get a little bit inebriated, that's when you bring out the bad alcohol. So Jesus brought out the bad, the best alcohol last, subverted everyone's expectations, got everyone drunk, and uh, subverted Jesus's time because, because uh, time is flexible. Prophecy is flexible. Things can be fulfilled in different ways. It says, hasten the coming of the Lord. Things are flexible. Things are not faded. Things don't have to be one specific way. There's multiple ways to fulfill prophecy. James White doesn't think so. He says, how can God have uh, got Jesus to be born in Bethlehem if free will exists? As if there's like only one way to do that. So that's interesting. Yeah, let's pretend even Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. What passage in the Old Testament are you going to turn back to and say, hey, this prophecy is not fulfilled? Maybe a random verse about some kid who's born at the time of the verse in a city called Bethlehem? That doesn't point to Jesus. It, it points to Jesus, yes. In the Hebrew sense in which time is cyclical and events repeat and the truth of events are established by past patterns, yes, but not in the biblical prophecy sense, the modern prophecy crystal ball. There's there's no crystal ball prophecy about Bethlehem. But but ancient Jews didn't think like us. They didn't read like us. They they thought cyclically. All right, so that's about all I wanted to say today. Uh, I wanted to talk about how the cross is not faded, not according to Jesus. It's not me. It's not about me. It's not about um, what I think or what I believe. It's always funny when people try to ascribe motivations. Oh, you really want prophecy to fail? I don't care. I, I literally don't care. It could go either way. I look at the data, and the data says that Jesus thinks that prophecies are conditional. Prophecies can fail. Scripture can be subverted. This is just the language of Jesus. This, this is the thoughts of them at that time. They have to take positive, active steps to make sure prophecy is fulfilled. Because prophecy is not fate. 
prophecy is not destiny. A scripture can fail per Jesus. Uh, th this is their thought pattern. But God is capable and competent and able to bring things about and has willing participants like Jesus who will work with him in order to fulfill this prophecy. Per the text. Per the text. But I hope everyone uh, enjoyed today. And uh, this is a decent debate by Bob Inyer and James White. I think, I think they get off track a little bit off of after their first original round. And then you get into this rhetorical back and forth. And then the entire debate becomes about the Trinity. And I see James White's talking about the Trinity being undone. Is that the topic of the debate? Is the future settled or open? Also the Trinity, James White versus Bob Enyart. Apparently that's that's the subject of the debate. <laughs> hey, here's uh, Jeremiah 112 by Roddy. Then said the Lord unto me, thou hast seen well, for I hasten my word to perform it. All right. Well, uh, everyone, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Questions, comments, post that on God's Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.